so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. my fellow disciple of liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for joining us here on the America Out Loud Network. All right, there is uh, there's a lot of attention being focused right now to our neighbor north of the border, and and rightly so. I'm sure that, uh, you know, this isn't the first time you've heard of what? Canadian truckers? They're doing a freedom convoy. What? No, it's it's dominated the news, at least it's been in the news, but... Getting an accurate feel of what it's like. Well, let's just say if you're getting it, if you're getting everything you know about mainstream sources or from mainstream sources uh, regarding this uh, this truckers convoy, um, you probably have a, a pretty slanted view of who and what they are. Because uh, I've I've been watching and paying very close attention to it, um, the CBC, for instance, the way that they're reporting on them. And uh, to to say that they are fawning over, you know, the government's handling of this and and doing everything they can to justify whatever the government is doing, which, as we saw recently, it turns out is is pretty violent stuff. Well, you're just not getting the full picture. I mean, it's an understatement to say that uh, they're fawning. It's they they make the American mainstream media look uh, kind of skeptical by comparison. And that takes some doing. I mean, the, 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 remember, the people who are chanting in unison, January 6th. I mean, it's, it's the same kind of thing. The craziest part about this is the, the truckers had their protest going on for, what, the better part of three weeks? It seems like it's taken more, more or less about two and a half to three weeks. There was no violence of any kind whatsoever until the police showed up and started, you know, doing their enforcement efforts. And, and it just gets crazier from here. I mean, on the one hand, you've got uh, the, the, the violence against these protesters. It was real. And, and I understand it's not every officer was doing this. Some, I'm sure, were, were trying to hold back. But there were some. You could just see that there, there was a, an enjoyment in what they were doing because of the unnecessary punishment and, and violence they were dispensing on people who were not in return being violent toward them. And I know it's easy to, to feel discouraged, like, well, gee, you know, they came in, they arrested the leaders, and now the, the mayor of Ottawa is saying they're going to take the trucks that they have impounded, and the city of Ottawa is going to sell them. But that's not even the worst part, right? Well, we came and took their trucks, and now we'll take them and we'll sell them, and there's no way they can get them back. But they also have have stooped to economic warfare. 
by freezing the accounts and and denying the donations that people were sending to this trucker convoy. And now you have Canadian law enforcement officials saying that uh, we are going to go after people. We are going to keep investigating, and for months we will be looking for and hunting down every person who participated in this protest, and there will be fines or there will be freezing of their financial assets or even arrests. You know, the craziest thing of all, this is the part that just blows my mind. I saw um, one of the two leaders who was arrested over the weekend, and I forget her name. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, I, I've been following this story, but not, you know, to the point where I'm, I'm, I'm on a first-name basis with everybody. But the charge that has been levied against her is consulting to commit mischief. Yes, mischief. You would think rolling in there and taking people's property, breaking their windows, dragging them out of their cars, running them down with horses, beating them with batons, pepper spraying them, all of that. You would think they they must have done something really serious. I mean, for crying out loud, the Emergency Act, which was created for use in time of war, was invoked. What were these people doing? Oh, they were uh, telling government to get your foot off my neck. I want to breathe. Oh, how dare they? And and the crazy part is there are people who actually adopt that attitude. I saw a commenter on Twitter who, who made the, the observation, you know, there, there was a video of, of the police, you know, beating down people and just being super aggressive towards them. And their attitude was, well, you know, it's a good thing. It's about time. And and in particular, this this elder native woman, yeah, I mean, she's one of the one of the First Nations women, uh, so it's hard to say. Yep, she's a white supremacist, all right. She's uh, she's knocked down with her walker, trampled by horses, and the attitude from people is, well, she deserves it. Why? Well, because she repeatedly dis- disobeyed police to leave the area when she should have. And this commenter on Twitter said, reading the comments like this, this is like walking through Jonestown. That's how disturbing it is. And you have to wonder why haven't people made the connection. You sit there and cheer because the police, uh, the, the state, through its organized punitive priesthood, is dispensing punishment on people that, okay, you don't agree with them. Maybe you don't even like them. And there's probably some ideological basis for it, but you cheer that on with this cocksure attitude and this idea that hey, it will never happen to me. And see, that's where they're wrong. They have this supreme confidence that, yeah, the people who got beaten and trampled and the people whose uh, money has been taken and the people whose accounts frozen and their property taken away and now is going to be stolen and sold. The government can do that to them, but it would never do it to me, but it will. The same spears that you are cheering being pointed on at other people will be pointed at you. And this is something that people who truly understand freedom recognize. And it's why government has to be kept in check, has to be subservient to the people. That's why it's primary status, at least, you know, according to in America, according to to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Government's job is to protect your God given rights. It is your servant. But it sure doesn't act that way. Oh, and one other thing to just kind of keep in mind, you know, again, if even if you agree with the truckers, but you're like, man, that sucks. Sure is bad to be in Canada. Have you noticed the conspicuous silence of virtually every uh, political leader throughout the West? Crickets. They're not saying a thing. 
Now, you know, if this was Black Lives Matter, if it was uh, if it was some other um, approved victim group, why they would be flipping out. So would the media. But they're not. They're very quiet about uh, the, the actual injustice that's being done. Why do you suppose that is? Why are Western leaders so silent on this matter? I can only assume it's because they must either agree with it or condone it at some level, which means, at least for for those of us here in America, that means that uh, very likely we have leaders who are strongly considering using it themselves against us. We'll talk more about the financial aspect, the economic warfare aspect, but I'm going to go off for just a moment here on a tangent about how uh, politics never will bring happiness. And and I say this from reading these comments where people were, you know, cheering on other people being abused at the hands of the state's enforcement caste. It was quite a few years ago, but I started to understand politics itself does very little to advance humanity in any way. And nothing that I've experienced since I first had that realization has par- persuaded me to reconsider this idea. I think it was reading an essay by Paul Rosenberg that first opened my mind to the regressive nature of politics when he pointed out how it keeps our minds ever focused on evil, but very carefully avoids pointing us toward the good. In fact, I would invite you, you think about anything that you've seen, heard, or read in the past week that was of a political nature. Can you name a single thing that wasn't in some way mired in base instincts like fear or tribalism or status? In fact, how many of the things you encountered on social media lately embodied that tactic of transforming those with a differing viewpoint into degrading, distorted caricatures of what they really are? Well, those truckers are really nothing more than a bunch of racist uh, rednecks who deserve whatever they're getting. Now, the fact that so many people have come to embrace this tendency as normal is a real strong indicator of just how deeply this pathology has infected and eroded our character. Paul Rosenberg makes a really strong case that in the past 5,000 years of human advancement, politics is the one thing that has remained fundamentally the same. It's stuck in Bronze Age technology because it comes down to men seeking to rule over others by violence. Now, if you're still skeptical, that's okay, but let's put it to the test. If a majority of people complain enough in the right ways Will a politician put magic words on paper that allow the majority to use violence against those who don't see things their way? Yes or no? Now, what if those who disagree with the magic words on paper are perfectly peaceful in their actions and cannot be shown to have harmed another person or steal his property? Would we support sending armed aggressors to assault and imprison them or to steal their property in an effort to force them to do what the majority wants? Now, again, if, you're, if your answer to this question is yes, how could these kinds of actions be described as anything but superstitious, primitive, and even barbaric? I mean, they denote a level of maturity that's more suited to cavemen than a more civilized, productive people. The way I see it, politics is akin to a collection of violent religious cultists who gather to chant and perform regular reassurance rituals affirming their faith in the magical words of their favorite state gods. And it thrives on keeping us divided and distrustful, filled with fear and dread that somehow things are going to get worse if we don't chant in unison. 
It also teaches us how we can feel brave and noble without actually having to have any kind of skin in the game. And isn't it curious how the problems supposedly solved by political means are never really resolved? As with most things that become politicized, they become just another power struggle that pits us against the other. But at the end of the day, politics would somehow have us believe that as long as the violence of the state is being directed at them and not us, that somehow we're winning. And it thrives on the short-sightedness that prevents us from recognizing the same spears we cheer to see pointed at our political opponents will eventually be pointed at us. Some people have figured this out, but a lot of people haven't. Besides the fact, when you have a political dialogue playing out in your mind virtually every waking hour, suddenly it becomes much more difficult to distinguish between what is sound and what isn't. Leonard E. Reed, who if you've never read his writings on liberty, it's, this is a resource you should real, really avail yourself of. He said, quote, one imperative is the awareness that the higher the objective is, the more dignified the method must be. If we aspire to a high objective as uh, advancing uh, to such a high objective as advancing individual liberty in the free market, well, then we can resort to no lesser method than the power of attraction, the absolute opposite of using propaganda, indoctrination, and half-truths, end quote. And I would add to that, or violence. Now, the fact that pointing this distinction out is certain to infuriate some of the real true believers. I've had people tell me, Brian, politics is everything. It's everywhere. That just underscores the point I'm trying to make of how politics degrades almost everything it touches. And my job here and my goal is not to put you on the defensive. I understand none of us like to see our choices questioned. But at the same time, none of us can make any kind of meaningful improvement in our own lives or for that matter to the world around us until we start asking these kinds of questions. And sadly, the more dogmatic we become, the less likely we are to recognize or accept the kinds of truths that genuinely change us for the better. Now, it is possible to reduce our political footprint to the point that the negative influences are of minimal consequence in our lives. But first, we have to make a conscious effort to break the psychological addiction that politics provides. Where politics thrives on conflict and negativity, we have to learn to see and celebrate the good and the noble. The positive is found in abundance around us. Once we've taken off the blinders, it's a lot easier to recognize. See, changing the world for the better doesn't require superstitiously forcing other people to do your bidding. And the people who figured this out are happier than those who haven't. I want to give you one more quick example of what this looks like. A few years ago, when Lavoy Finicum was killed, and if you don't know who Lavoy Finicum is, I would invite you to Google his name, but I'll also warn you, there's a lot of disinformation out there. I had the privilege of actually knowing the man personally when he was killed in Oregon during the occupation of the uh, wildlife refuge up there in Malcure. Lavoy's brother came and spoke to a group, and, and one of the things that I, I was there when he, he came and spoke to this group, and one of the bits of counsel that he offered that I thought was so on target was he said, it's okay to be aware of what's going on and, and to be aware of the evil that is being foisted on us from a number of different angles. But we should allow maybe 5% of our attention to be devoted to that 
The other 95% of our attention ought to be devoted to the things that we love, the people that we love, the institutions, the principles that make life worthwhile. Politics, unfortunately, twists that, uh, that balance around to about the exact opposite. We focus on what divides us, what makes us mad, what, uh, what we want to do to other people with whom we're angry or we're upset, rather than focusing on the good. In fact, I want to segue from this into, uh, into a quick email that Paul Rosenberg sent out last week. And he says, I'm borrowing a little bit from my March newsletter, but I think this point needs to be made. He says, over the past few days, we've seen the tyrant of Canada and his minions invoking martial law, seizing bank accounts, threatening to kill the dogs of people they dislike. If you hadn't heard about this, they were actually telling truckers, those who had had personal pets that travel with them in their vehicles, you know, if uh, if we tow your vehicle or if we arrest you and we have to take custody of your dog, if you haven't got your dog sprung, you haven't paid the fines and everything that goes with that in eight days, we'll consider your dog abandoned and put it down. Yeah. They also threatened to, to, well, make sure your kids are handed off to Child Protective Services and you'll lose custody of your kids. They reference uh, Satan figures, Trump in particular, and uh, telling protest supporters, you ought to be afraid. Now, Paul Rosenberg says their wannabe friends are doxing and harassing people who donated money to a fully, not mostly, peaceful protest. And someone... And after someone, he says, wouldn't you love to know who that was? That person, by the way, actually posted a video of himself on Twitter, you know, taking credit for it. Maybe it was on TikTok. I can't remember. He, I don't use this lightly. I believe in God. I believe that there is good and there is evil. And when I tell you that, uh, man, that person looks like they are demonically possessed. I kid you not. The look in this guy's eyes, the way he, he carries on, the way his, his body just keeps moving almost without, without him being in control of it. And he's screaming at the camera and just, come at me, truckers, come at me. It's just, I'm not an exorcist. I am not an expert on demonic possession, but it's pretty creepy. If he wasn't possessed, he was missing a good opportunity. And this is the guy who hacked into the donation service, give, send, go, and then stole the names of all those who dared oppose the tyranny and leaked it. First of all, he gave it to the authorities who then leaked it to the media. And now you've got uh, press operatives in uh, Canada and the U.S. contacting these people. Well, you know, Don, we see that you donated $25 to the truckers convoy. We just want to make sure. Is this right? Is that was it you who made that donation? Tell us why you would donate to this convoy. That's pure intimidation right there. And it's also clear that the Canadian military and many policemen declined to play thug against the protesters, which probably explains why when the uh, RCMP, which is the FBI version of Canada, came in, their guys uh, did not have on any insignia. They had no name tags. Their faces were masked. You know, secret police stuff. Stuff that's uh, so bold and so much in the public good that you don't dare allow yourself to be identified. But the non-compliant enforcer class, a good portion of them, didn't stop the tyranny. And the reason they didn't stop the tyranny was because Canada has systems, like many others throughout the West, that were pre-wired for your safety. This is particularly where we get to talking about the money that they've been trying to steal. 
I mean, Paul Rosenberg says, hey, it's wonderful and it's necessary that so many policemen refuse to play thug, but that sure didn't stop the tyrant from seizing hundreds or thousands of bank accounts and so on. So the tyrant wasn't stopped cold. He had a dozen ways to destroy his enemies without the enforcers and then to keep the pressure on millions at a time with continuing propaganda. And the point that Paul Rosenberg is making here is this happened precisely because of a hundred safety conscious choices. Well, we just had to do something about those money launderers out there, whoever they are. The kidnapper on every corner, the drug dealer in every schoolyard, the conspiracy theorist in every other house. We got to shut down, you know, these we got to lock down these financial systems because of this. But he says, by wiring the system to protect us from these armies of monsters that government is trying to convince us exist, we made everyone everyone vulnerable to the tyrant seated at the center of it all. Now, if you're old enough, you probably remember, it's not supposed to be easy to seize people's money. It's not supposed to be easy to indict people or to condemn them en masse or to justify it all in a rage-addicted, compliant infosphere. And it's never supposed to be fast and easy to censor people. But because we have allowed our governments at every level to be pre-wired for justice, that's what brought us to this state. Paul Rosenberg says, I'm old enough to remember a world in which people weren't terrified all the time, where one half of the populace didn't despise and wish doom on the other half. When we tried not to organize ourselves around Satan figures because we knew that was a road to hell. And he says, I also remember when people learned how to trust and how to be trusted. But we lost all of this when fear became the driving force in human affairs, as it has been in the lead up to every tyranny. I mean, that's some pretty harsh uh, reality right there. But I think he is absolutely dealing with reality. And I get it if, if you want to say, well, you're just being naive if you think that uh, politics isn't something that everybody ought to embrace. I, I participate in politics only to the point that I feel like I have some influence that I can use. And I try to use that influence as wisely as I possibly can. Now, for me, that means getting involved at the precinct level, which is basically the neighborhood level, and uh, and doing the best I can to inform. And if, if I'm nominated and elected to serve as a delegate, for instance, to county or state conventions, I've done that. But mostly I steer clear of politics. I try, I try to go on as politics-free a diet as I possibly can simply because... It, it's like a mind bug. It will infect your thinking. It will cause you to, to obsess over things that you really don't have control over. But worse, there's an off switch or somehow it accesses our, our humanity and our empathy. And as long as there's an opponent that, uh, you know, we can direct that government power against, a lot of people are willing to tolerate things from government that they absolutely wouldn't tolerate if it was being done to someone they love or being done to themselves. I mean, I'm not trying to push anything on you here, but the golden rule sure does make a lot of sense when you look around you and think, if I was treating people the way I wanted to be treated, it sure wouldn't be like this. So it also raises some very interesting questions about what to do with your money. And I got to tread carefully here because this is where, you know, someone will accuse me, Brian, are you trying to start a run on the banks? Ah, too late. Canada already did that. When they, when they told people, when they told uh, the, particularly the protesters there in Ottawa, it doesn't matter if you leave now, we're still coming after your bank accounts. We're still going to freeze your credit cards. 
Well, what incentive do you have to to leave then? I mean, you know, if you want to just try to squeeze people out and put them out into the cold to where they feel like, you know, I live in a medieval village and I've been banished and my duty now is just to go away and starve to death and leave everybody alone. I mean, we kind of joke about it like, ha ha, yeah, that's how they did it in the Dark Ages. Welcome to the digital Dark Ages, because that is exactly the kind of thing that is being set up right now. The social credit system that we joke around about China having, and thank goodness we don't have one of those. It's falling into place all around us. So whatever backup you have, it's probably a good idea if you don't have it to to start working on it, right? This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement is a combination of calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four stages of the human sleep cycle. Fall asleep, stay asleep, get a deep sleep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. This is very important. So there are combinations that address in this single product the ability to fall asleep easily. There are others that help the body lower the body temperature, which is normal during sleep, and still others that cause a deep and lasting sleep. That's what so many people are after. And finally, interestingly, combinations that help creativity boosting during REM sleep. I can tell you, I use this one personally. It's in a microgel formula. I had a patient this last week who has long COVID syndrome, and she has terrible GI side effects, and she has GI hypomotility and said, listen, she's not even tolerating pills or these chalky, large vitamins. I said, go to Healthy Cell. Get the Healthy Cell line. We use it in post-COVID syndrome patients. And this product particularly will help sleep get on track. Now, I tell people, listen, take it every night and do so for months and months. The body likes regular administration of any exogenous substance. Don't take it on and off. It's not like a sleeping pill. This is something you take every night to get high quality sleep back into your day. And you feel better during the day after having better quality sleep at night. So go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Constitution is the most magnificent document on earth. We are America Out Loud. Join us as we celebrate the genius of our founding fathers. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. 
Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for tuning in the America Out Loud Network. Please pay close attention to the sponsors of this program and other shows. Show your support for them. If there was ever a time for us to pull together and have each other's backs, this is it. And to the extent that we are facilitating the free flow of information, if you hear something that's useful, that makes you smile, or otherwise leaves you feeling empowered, feel free to... uh, to Spread the word, let people know, hey, this is where I heard it. Here's what you can do to help out and, and, and show some love to those sponsors. It matters more than you know. So two things I want to touch on. Um, one of them is right now a lot of people are feeling very powerless because of the crackdown that took place in, uh, in Canada. And it's, this is one battle in a much larger war. You've got to understand this was not just about truckers. This was about everybody and they were standing for the freedom of everybody and there were a lot of people who came forward and cheered them on because they felt this is the right thing we've suffered under nearly two years of a government boot on the back of our necks you know using covid as an excuse i'm telling you watch the watch the police crack down on on these protesters and it could not be more clear that was never about a virus it was never about just protecting the public health no sir it's about control. It's about compliance. And that's the thing you keep hearing over and over from the people who are chanting in unison on Twitter. Well, they deserved it. They deserved it. Yeah, they wouldn't comply. When a policeman tells you, you do this, you do it right now. And it's, it's just so sickening. And the people who say, well, these people just didn't want to wear masks and they probably have to, you know, they, they deserve to be punished. You know, there's no place in our society for, uh, for the unvaccinated. Oh, you think I'm making that up? That was actually a, an Italian politician who was asked, hey, what, what are you doing now? People over age 50 in Italy, as of last week, who were not vaccinated, were shut out from their jobs, shut out from, from society. And when asked about this, you know what this, this Italian politician said? He said, there is no place for the, vac- the unvaccinated in our society. <laughs> wow. So we're going we're gonna to make them sew a little yellow syringe on their coats to wear around so people know who they're dealing with? And people who say, well, you know, how does this, how does this translate into, you know, uh, how could they think it was, it was a worthwhile stand? They just didn't want to wear face masks. I wonder in part if this is one of the reasons why some of the police were being so brutal, because they were being shown up by people, men and women, who were obviously better than them because they had the courage to say no. Maybe they just felt like they needed to, <laughs> to punish them for, for making them look bad. The contrast and comparison was looking poorly for them. But every person who says, well, they deserve it. They, you know, cheers the cops. Way to go, cops. Way to restore order. They may not realize it. They they are the same kind of people who cheered when Rosa Parks was arrested. How dare she get so uppity? She should know her place. And apparently we, the unvaccinated, should know our place. 
So I'm going to share with you a, an article about the power of the powerless is real. I'm going to save that, though, because I first want to go into a little more depth on the truckers themselves. Came across a great Substack account. This is called The Upheaval. N.S. Lyons is the author, and this one's titled Reality Honks Back. This is one of the best explanations I have heard of what is shaping up, not just in Canada, but also elsewhere in the world. And you clearly can see there is a, there is a, there's a conflict between the state and the people, but it's not purely just the state that is throwing its, its weight behind forcing people to do whatever. It's the virtual class, the Zoom class I've heard them uh, re- referred to as, versus the, the workers or the physical class. And truckers work in the physical world. They physically transport items from one place to the next. Any store you walk into that has items on its shelf, those things arrived on a truck. And it seems like the, uh, the virtual class seems to think that they are like Jedis. We can control everything with our minds and our computer keystrokes. But those trucks parked out in front of Parliament. <laughs> well, those things didn't disappear quite as quickly, did they? It wasn't like you could just Jedi mind trick, you know, lift them away and make them, make them disappear. So let's take a look at this. Reality honks back. N.S. Lyons says, like many, I have spent the last couple of weeks entranced a bit by the trucker protests happening in Canada and now around the world from Paris to Wellington. I initially tried to document here every twist and turn of the Freedom Convoy drama, but I found it nearly impossible. Events continue to unfold very quickly. In fact, he says, as I write this, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just invoked the Emergencies Act, in other words, martial law, allowing him to suspend liberties and basically do whatever he wants to crush the protest. So they may soon be quelled, or perhaps not. No one can say precisely how this may all end. But in any case, news and commentary detailing the protests can now be found everywhere, so I'm just going to assume you already have a familiarity with what's happening, as I want to try to distill a few more unique thoughts on why I find these protests so striking, specifically why all this seems like such a perfect reflection of the reality war. Now, he links to that essay in in this article, and he says, In that essay, I noted how from the perspective of those with the most wealth and power, as well as the technocratic managers and intelligentsia, our priestly class, keepers of the knowledge, digital technology, and global networks, seem to have created an unprecedented opportunity for theory to wrest control from recalcitrant nature for liquid narrative to triumph over mundanely static reality, and for all the corrupt traditional bonds of the world to be severed, its atoms reconfigured in a more correct and desirable manner. In this mostly subconscious vision of luxury Gnosticism, the middle and lower classes can then be sold, dispossession, and disembodiment as liberation, while those as yet essential working classes who still cling distastefully to the physical world can mostly be ignored until the day they can be successfully automated out of our existence. Now, he says, I also quoted a chapter from the late Christopher Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites, that's worth repeating here. The thinking classes are fatally removed from the physical side of life. Their only relation to productive labor is that of consumers. They had no experience of making anything substantial or enduring. They live in a world of abstractions and images, a simulated world that consists of computerized models of reality, hyper-reality as it's been called, 
as distinguished from the palatable, immediate, physical reality inhabited by ordinary men and women. Their belief in social construction of reality, the central dogma of postmodernist thought, reflects the experience of living in an, inf- in an artificial environment from which everything that resists human control, unavoidably everything familiar and reassuring as well, has been rigorously excluded. Control has become their obsession. In their drive to insulate themselves against risk and contingency, against the unpredictable hazards that afflict human life, the thinking classes have seceded not just from the common world around them, but from reality itself. End quote. So let's consider this using the protest as a lens and vice versa. Lyons says, To simplify, let's first identify and categorize two classes of people in society, who we could say tend to navigate and interact with the world in fundamentally different ways. The first is a class that has been a part of human civilization for a really long time. These are the people who work primarily in the real physical world. Maybe they work directly with their hands, like a carpenter or a mechanic or a farmer. Maybe they're just a step away. They own or manage a business where they organize and direct employees who work with their hands and buy or sell or move things around in the real world, like a transport logistics company, maybe. This class necessarily works in a physical location, or they own and operate physical assets that are central to their trade. Now, the second class is different. It is, relatively speaking, a new civilization. Let me try this again civilizational innovation, at least numbering more than a handful of people. This group is the thinking class that Lash was writing about above. Now, they don't interact much with the physical world directly, but they are handlers of knowledge. They work with information, which might be digital or analog, numerical or narrative, but in all cases, it exists at a level of abstraction from the real world. Manipulation and distribution of this information can influence the real world, but only through informational chains that pass directives to to agents that can themselves act in the physical world, a bit like a software program that sends commands to a robot arm on an assembly line. Now, to facilitate this, they build and manage abstract institutions and systems of organizational communication as a means of control. Individuals in this class usually occupy middle links in these informational chains, in which neither the inputs nor outputs of their role has any direct relationship with or impact on the physical world. They are informational middlemen. This class can therefore do their job almost entirely from a laptop, by email or a virtual Zoom meeting, and has recently realized they don't even need to be sitting in an office cubicle while they do it. For our purposes here, let's call these two classes the physicals and the virtuals, respectively. When considering the causes and character of the current protest and the response to it, I would say the divide between physicals and visuals is by far the most relevant frame of analysis available. In fact, I'd say this is among the most significant divides in all of Western politics today. Now, much has been made of the working class and their alienation from the elite, but this phrasing comes mixed up with associations about material wealth and economic class that aren't necessarily helpful. Many, though not all, of those who support populist politics in opposition to the elite tend to frequently be either fairly solidly middle-class skilled tradesmen, relatively successful small businessmen, or landholders like farmers, ranchers, real estate entrepreneurs, who are often actually relatively well-off. It is the character of their work that seems to shape the common identity and values of each side of the the class divide more so than income.
So too does this difference appear to widen and perhaps even help explain the, the root of the huge and growing gender divide in politics, given the fairly well-established preference, on average, by men to work with things, more concrete, and women to work with people, which is more abstract. Meanwhile, this class divide also maps closely onto another much-discussed political wedge, the geographic split between the cities, where most of the virtuals are concentrated, and the outlying exurbs and rural hinterlands, where the physicals remain predominant. I would suggest the nature of these two classes plays a significant role in shaping the local cultures of these places. And as anyone following events in the United States, UK, Australia, or Europe over the past few years, such as Brexit or the Yellow Vest protests in France, could tell you by now, partisan differences between urban metropolitan cores and provinces seem to have become one of the defining features of politics across the Western democratic world. Interestingly enough, he includes in the article a map of the eastern half of the United States showing at very high detail the geographic distribution of votes cast in the 2016 presidential election. The urban-rural divide between political parties couldn't be more stark. It really is quite impressive because it it shows you very clearly that, uh, yeah, there are pockets of blue, but the vast majority of flyover country is blood-red. Now, differences in the Canadian electoral system mean that he can't show us a similar map for Canada, but you can be assured that the urban-rural divide there is just as significant. Lyons says the most relevant distinction between virtuals and physicals is that the virtuals are now everywhere unambiguously the ruling class. It's a world in which knowledge is the primary component of value-added production, or so we're told, And economic activity is increasingly defined by the digital and the abstract. They have been the overwhelming winners accumulating financial, political, and cultural status and influence. Now, in part, this is because the ruling class is also a global class, and so has access to global capital. It is global because the world's city brains are directly connected with each other across virtual space and are in constant communication. Indeed, their residents have far more in common with each other, uh, including across national borders, than they do with the local people of their own hinterlands, who are in comparison practically from another planet. But the virtual ruling class has a vulnerability it has not yet solved. The cities in which their bodies, which their bodies continue to occupy uh, mundane uh, physical reality require a whole lot of physical infrastructure and manpower to function. Electricity, sewage, food, the vital uh, Sumatra to Latte supply chain, Ultimately, they still remain reliant on the physical world. The great brain hubs of the virtuals float suspended in the expanse of the physicals, complex arterial networks pumping life-sustaining resources inward from their hosts. So when the physicals of the Canadian host body revolted against their control, the virtual class suddenly faced a huge problem. When the truckers rolled their big rigs, each weighing about 35,000 pounds, up to the political elite's doorstep, put on the parking brakes or removed their wheels entirely, and refused to leave until their their concerns were addressed, this was like dropping a very solid boulder of reality in the virtual's front lawn and daring them to remove it without assistance. And because the virtuals do not yet actually have the Jedi powers to move things with their minds, the truckers effectively called their bluff on who ultimately has control over the world. Well, it turns out that not only do the physicals still exist and are for now still able to drive themselves into the heart of cities, they actually still have power, a lot of power. 
in the middle of a supply chain crisis, those truckers represent the total reliance of the ruling elite on the very people they find alien and abhorrent. To many of the virtuals, this is existentially frightening. The reaction of the virtual ruling class represented by the absolutely archetypical modern progressive male Justin Trudeau to this challenge has been extremely telling and in fact rather predictable. Their first reaction was to dismiss the 50,000-strong convoy as representing, in Trudeau's words, a small fringe minority with unacceptable views. Being, after all, divorced from reality, he did not seem to have any understanding of the implications of what was barreling toward him. No one in his government seemed to have prepared at all in the days leading up to the truckers' arrival as the Freedom Convoy drove all the way across the country to Ottawa. But once they grasped the situation... The virtual's response was to turn immediately to their default means of dealing with any problem, narrative and informational control. Trudeau checked his diary list of most used phrases after fleeing the city for security reasons. He unleashed all of them at once in one great shotgun blast of smears, saying the truckers were guilty of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, homophobia and transphobia, not to mention misogyny and being anti-science. He accused them of flying racist flags and waving swastikas. Only one seems to have been spotted before being swiftly ejected by the crowd. And he announced that he would refuse to meet with them because he would not go anywhere near protests that have expressed hateful rhetoric and violence. He declared Canadians to be shocked and frankly disgusted with the protesters. Now, his class allies leaped into the same line of attack. Catherine McKinney, Ottawa's non-binary social justice-loving counselor, accused the Freedom Convoy of promoting very right-wing extremist messages and being part of a movement that is extreme and that is xenophobic. Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly declared them to be increasingly dangerous and hateful. Ontario Premier Doug Ford labeled it an occupation and a siege. The chair of the city's police services board ranted that the siege was part of a nationwide insurrection, a threat to our democracy. Angry demands started being made for Trudeau to call in the military. Well, Canadian state media lustily played along, attempting to ham-fistedly shove the whole phenomenon into an American political frame. The whole convoy was a pseudo-Trumpian grift that was organized and led by documented racist and QAnon-style nutters. Anchors gravely compared footage of smiling Canadian flag-waving grandmas, diverse crowds of dancing Sikhs, and children playing in bouncy castles to January 6th and white supremacy. American outlets like Politico and the New York Times warned of the far right having been galvanized worldwide. Allegations of the protests having been organized and funded by no less than the Russians were seriously aired. Academic extremism experts were trundled onto television to confirm that this was in fact a pack of literal terrorists and that even if the protests were technically entirely peaceful, crime in Ottawa downtown having actually fallen, this was only a maliciously cunning cover to enable mass violence. By what common understanding of the term does what we are seeing on the ground, on TV, in our social media feeds qualify as peaceful protest, asked one, presumably talking about the hug-ins or maybe the on-site meals for the homeless. Is it merely the absence of physical violence and injury? That's not an important, but it is insufficient as a definitional threshold. And the TV talking heads nod sagely. Facebook and Twitter, of course, also quickly shut down the accounts and groups set up by protesters to, to communicate, often with hundreds of thousands of members, not just in Canada, but in countries around the world, citing the need to prevent the spread of misinformation <laughs> Now, if this all seems awfully synchronized, that's the whole point. 
Systemic information or systematic information control, what the Chinese Party uh, Communist Party refers to as public opinion management, is now the entire strategic response of the virtual class to every political problem. But the author here says, have a little sympathy for them. They do this not just because it's cynically convenient, though it is, but this is literally the only way they know how to navigate and influence the world. The postmodern fish swims in a narrative sea. Their first reaction is always to try to control it through what the Chinese Communist Party calls discourse power. Because at heart, they well and truly believe in the idea of the social construction of reality. As Lash pointed out in the quote at top. So if there's no fixed objective truth, there's only power, well then the mind's will rules the world. Facts can be reframed as needed to create the story that best produces the correct results for progress. This is why you'll find journalists are now professionally obsessed with storytelling rather than reporting facts. Normally, all one need do is recast the dominant narrative of events in such a way as to allow the system to reestablish compliance by enough links in the informational control chains to inspire physical action in meat space, or at least just distract the public until the problem goes away. The problem is... None of this has worked to move the trucks. The virtual class can't move the trucks. Smears alone can't move the trucks. All the towing companies in Ottawa refused to move the trucks. Because surprisingly, it turns out, tow truck drivers also drive trucks for a living. There aren't enough police to seize the trucks because the rank-and-file police in Ottawa have been taking all of their vacation and sick sick days, mysteriously not showing up for work or simply resigning. See, it turns out police officers also tend to be part of the physical class. And class solidarity may actually be a good thing. Meanwhile, even the narrative reframing trick, which usually works great, has been failing. There's simply been too wide a gulf between what citizens have been told and what they can see with their own eyes. Sympathy for the truckers' cause actually seems to have grown. More than half of Canadians now oppose continuing to mandate vaccines. Two-thirds now support removing COVID-19 restrictions. Multiple liberal members of parliament have turned on Trudeau to speak out against his approach. Five provinces now have moved to end pandemic restrictions, including Ontario. No matter how desperately Trudeau has scrambled to change the narrative, he hasn't yet succeeded. Even a gambit to threaten the truckers with having their children removed by child protection services, presumably to make it easier to instigate a narrative convenient, uh, con- narratively convenient violent confrontation, that just led to backlash so far. Relentless discipline by the truckers has provided him with nearly nothing to work with. Which is why the virtual elite have steadily escalated up the ladder of more and more coercive informational control, leveraging their hold on state power to try to compel compliance by the revolting physicals. Now, this began with the government requesting the crowdfunding site GoFundMe shut down the $10 million in funds raised there for the truckers. The company complied immediately, saying the Freedom Convoy had engaged in an abuse of power. Now, what power was unclear and uh, was supporting hate, violence, harassment, bullying, discrimination, terrorism, and intolerance. Then came as many legal fines for obscure violations as authorities could find to throw at the truckers, while a replacement fundraiser on Give, Send, Go was also frozen by a Canadian court. But now with the protests in their third week, Trudeau has gone nuclear, invoking Canada's Emergency Act, Emergencies Act for the first time in its history. A renamed version of what was once called the War Measures Act, this allows him to override civil liberty protections in order to remove the blockades, including by force. Trudeau specified this includes the ability to compel the tow companies to move the trucks. 
And while Trudeau has denied that he will use his new powers to deploy the military against the Canadian people, his finance minister, Christia Freeland, said that financial institutions will be instructed to cease providing financial services where the institution suspects that an account is being used to further the illegal blockades and occupations, and that they will be able to immediately freeze or suspend an account without a court order and with full protection against civil liability. All crowdfunding platforms now will fall under the control of Canada's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules, which will require fundraising campaigns to be approved by Canadian intelligence services. That's scary. That's economic warfare right there. Now, the author here says that Trudeau's government would choose to jettison any remaining illusion of Canada still being a liberal democracy just to harm their political class enemies isn't too surprising. It's their method of doing so that's particularly striking. Control over digital financial assets is pretty much the ultimate leverage now available to the virtuals. And we should expect more use of this tool around the world anywhere the physicals continue to revolt against their masters. And here the virtuals have a significant advantage because they're free to use the maximum level of coercive force available in their natural domain. While the physicals cannot. Because in the physical world, that would mean violence, which is something the protesters have rightly forsworn. So the current trucker protests in Canada may soon be brought to a close by the state, but it's unlikely to mark the end of the story. The great honking of 2022 has already been revelatory to people around the world. It is the climax of a process in which all the divides in society, including between the physicals and the virtuals that I've described here, have been revealed by the pandemic and government's responses. At the same time, the pandemic served to clarify the continued reliance of the virtual class on essential workers. The revelation of the exceptional vulnerability of modern supply chains has demonstrated very clearly to everyone paying attention that the physical still possess tremendous power of their own as long as they are able to act in unity and solidarity. Or as many signs that the protests have pointed out to the virtuals, no truckers, no food. In this sense... The Freedom Convoy has already become the most successful labor movement in decades, awakening a genuine new class consciousness, as a Marxist would put it, in the minds of reality-based, uh, the reality-based working class. And it's notable that this has already become a transnational phenomenon. With the convoy protests spreading like wildfire around the globe, precisely because the exact same divide now exists in so many developed countries, where the virtual ruling class has everywhere overreached with similar hubris. Naturally, the virtuals have everywhere agreed have greeted this development with horror. Looking at the map above or looking out their windows, they may have realized just how vulnerable they are holed up in their cities. Perhaps they are imagining that should the physicals outside, who once they felt safe to ignore, engage in not just scattered protest, but a full-scale revolutionary revolt, or even simply a general strike, suspending all movement of goods, their bastions of enlightened civilization would be starving, shivering, and buried in trash within a week. So, of course, they hate and fear the truckers. It's no wonder Trudeau is panicking and behaving a a bit like a dictator, facing an existential challenge to his rule. In a sense, he is. Now, there's an obvious irony here that the, in the fact that the ostensibly left-wing parties like Trudeau's liberals have viciously turned everywhere on the working class. An observation that's now widespread, as far as I can tell, mainly to the, thanks mainly to the satirists at the Babylon Bee. 
But this is merely the culmination of a long, inevitable political realignment that's occurred across the West as the left became the party of the virtuals. The socialist revolution became a revolution against fixed reality. And the physicals became the backwards, reactionary others standing in the way of progress. For the virtual elite, the most unforgivable thing about the physicals and the physical world in general is that they stubbornly refuse to yield to full, frictionless control. There's a reason the dominant informational class is today the most, is most comfortable in a purely virtual environment. It's the one where they can have direct, instantaneous control over virtual matter. Real matter is stubbornly resistant, a reminder that the self doesn't control the universe. It's dirty, polluting, a reminder of one's vulnerability, even mortality. And the need to rely on other humans to deal with it is super awkward. So expect the virtuals of the ruling class to double down on trying to exert control, moving with all haste to develop new and innovative methods of information management and coercion to try to eliminate every human vulnerability from the machine. Self-driving truck startups are about to have an excellent next funding round. But at least in the near term, it's physicals like the truckers that have the advantage. They are the ones with the real leverage, and now they know it. Trudeau and company better just hope, uh, just better hope that workers don't start reading Mao like he did in his youth, or they'll learn all about how that revolutionary uh, that revolution managed to win by surrounding the cities from the countryside, or how Mao began his revolution by declaring that a single spark can start a prairie fire. But then the Canucks seem to have managed to do that part already. Is that not some brilliant stuff right there? NS Lions, this is uh, the upheaval.substack.com. I'm subscribing even as I speak here just because that is some great information. And I would encourage you, if you aren't already subscribing, maybe consider putting this one on your list. Look, it's okay to question the narrative. It is okay to stand up for your rights. The most important thing is that when other people see you doing it, they are infected with courage. And they see that it can be done. And there is nothing shameful about questioning those in power, particularly when they're putting their boot on the back of your neck. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty. 